Good evening. For many people the world over, uh, this day, which commemorates the brutal execution of the most notable individual in human history, the day we call Good Friday, uh, is more than a great irony. For uh, unbelievers, uh, this day, this week in the life of Jesus, uh, and its pivotal and seismic sway on all of human history, affecting people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, is both perplexing and an unsettling enigma. Fewer, yet still many, uh, around the world gather tonight in houses of faith. They do so to mark in memorial the mystery uh, and the majesty of the God-man, Jesus Christ. We are accustomed uh, in our culture to uh, memorializing those that we've lost, the dead. But when we do so, we routinely go to a cemetery where a family member or a friend might be interred or have been laid in the ground and there's a stone to mark the site of their grave. And when we visit them, uh, we know that they're not there, but we might speak to them, we might pray, uh, we might shed tears, we can leave uh, flowers. Not so with the death of Jesus Christ. Tonight we gather to contemplate, uh, to meditate on the sufferings of Jesus, to uh, remember, to uh, remind ourselves uh, to gaze intently into the scope of all that Jesus did to provide redemption for us. We do this so that we might draw nearer to Him in intimate worship. Uh, we do this, as Paul says, so that the manner of our lives might be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My intent tonight is uh, springing from the motivation of the Apostle Paul for us to revisit uh, the story of Jesus, taking in uh, the final day. Actually, it's about 18 hours. Why is it important for us to return again and again to the cross of Jesus? I've been asked that question. Um, why do you spend so much time talking about the cross? I've had it said to me, you know, Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. We should focus on the empty tomb. And the empty tomb is the seal of the Father's approval that, that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, made an effective payment for our sin. But uh, apart from uh, the cross, there can be no empty tomb. Uh, and it's actually at the cross, as we come back to the cross time and time again, that we come to know uh, our superlative Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, in writing in Philippians, gives us a little bit of insight about what motivated him as he thinks about uh, shaking off any uh, self-reliance, any dependence upon the flesh. And he writes in chapter 3 these words, "'Whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss.'" Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Here's why we come back to the cross again and again and again, to the sacrifice of Jesus. Because we cannot put ourselves adequately in his shoes. It's impossible for us to understand the whole weight of what Jesus Christ endured when he died upon the cross for our salvation. We lack the mental capacity uh, to absorb it, to wrap our hands around it. We lack the, uh, the emotional heart to endure even an infinitesimal amount of the suffering that he endured on be our behalf. 
We lack the physical strength to bear up under the beatings and the cursing uh, and the weight of the actual cross, uh, not to mention the actual crucifixion itself. And we lack the spiritual substance that would make us uh, ever fit to be a substitute for someone else. In fact, uh, our condition makes us the necessary aim of his great sacrifice. All of this being true, uh, it's apparent then that I am wholly and woefully unable to adequately express what Paul writes in Ephesians is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. This is why we have to come back. But perhaps tonight we can get a little closer if we can't put ourselves in Jesus' shoes by putting ourselves in the disciples' shoes. To do that, I want us to uh, start with the Last Supper. What would you do uh, if you knew you only had less than 24 hours to live? I'd like you to consider that uh, as we uh, look at what Jesus did for us. Now, to help us frame that, uh, I need to explain to you uh, a bit about how the Jews uh, reckon time. Uh, For them, a new day began at 6 p.m., Uh, And so as we're studying the story of Jesus Christ, it's very important to know uh, that uh, a new day begins at 6 p.m. and ends tomorrow night at 6 p.m. I'll unpack that just a little. But as we start, the disciples uh, rise with Jesus on Thursday morning, and they head to Jerusalem uh, where they're going to arrive at a borrowed large upper room, something that was prearranged, probably a wealthy person who had an upper room that size. And there they're going to share the Passover together. The disciples have been living on adrenaline. They are uh, confident that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that his coming to Jerusalem is going to culminate by week's end in a revolution initiating, and they're going to be on the winning side. But Jesus knows that he is entering the last stages of his life. Now, um, as they retreat to the upper room, it's 6 o'clock on Thursday evening, okay? So it's last night at 6 o'clock. And uh, this this day, Thursday, uh, beginning at 6 o'clock through Friday at 6 o'clock, is called the Day of Preparation. This is the day before the celebration of Sabbath, when they would actually celebrate the Passover. And on the Day of Preparation, every family or a grouping of families would take an unblemished lamb, and they would slaughter it and prepare it for the celebration of Passover. So it's on, uh, on this day, the Day of Preparation, on Friday, that the lamb will be sacrificed. This is very important. Jesus must needs die as the atoning sacrifice for sin as the Lamb of God on the day of preparation. This gives way to uh, the Sabbath day, which runs from 6 p.m. on Friday uh, to 6 p.m. on Saturday. That's the Sabbath celebration. And then Sunday runs from 6 p.m. on Saturday to 6 p.m. on Sunday. So 6 p.m. on on, uh, Saturday is the end of the Sabbath. Now, what we know uh, as we uh, study the, the final uh, days of Jesus Christ is that the, the leaders, the religious leaders, although they were agreed to kill Jesus, they had committed not to do it during the festival because they didn't want to cause an uproar among the people. They didn't want to do anything uh, to capture the attention of Rome, except one of Jesus' own followers consented to betray him and turn him over to them under the cover of darkness. And this is what led the religious leaders to move up their timeline. But from the moment they committed to the plan, they were under the gun. Come Thursday morning, they know that Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion must be done so that Jesus is off the cross well before the beginning of Sabbath on Friday night at 6 o'clock. So as God's providence would have it, their plan to execute Jesus is actually going to fall on the day that prophetically he needed to be executed in order to fulfill prophecy. 
So from here, let's dive into the last uh, 18 hours of Jesus' earthly life. It's 6 o'clock on Thursday evening. Jesus and the disciples have gathered in the upper room and they, uh, that's been prepared for them. And they're going to be there till somewhere uh, prior to midnight. And Jesus in this time, according to John, uh, is ministering to the disciples. Here he washes their feet. Uh, in their midst, he predicts his betrayal. Uh, he uh, patiently answers their questions. He gives final instructions during this time. He talks to them about a new commandment driven by love that's to be the defining characteristic of who they are as his followers. He tells them that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man can get to the Father but by him. He reminds them that they're going to have to abide in him. They're going to have to remain in him if they are to be fruitful. He speaks of the comforter that he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and he talks about his ministry. He warns them that as the world has hated him, they're going to hate the, uh, them as his followers. He tells them that they're going to be marked by sorrow, but their sorrow will turn to joy. And he wants them to have peace, because already he has overcome the world. And the disciples are hearing this through a particular lens. Then he prays for them. He prays for protection and oneness and sanctification, and then he prays for us, those who would believe after them. But the anchor of their time in the upper room uh, is the fellowship at table, where they celebrate the Passover together, and Jesus introduces to them the Lord's Supper. Now, there might have been some confusion uh, among the disciples, wondering why we're celebrating Passover a day early, but no one wanted to ask Messiah about that. We know in hindsight from Scripture uh, that uh, by the time Sabbath begins, Jesus is already dead and in the grave. And again, he must needs die on the day that sacrificial lambs died. The Gospel of Luke records Jesus' words at the beginning of the meal. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until I have, it has fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Though the disciples still couldn't understand what Jesus was alluding to regarding suffering, Jesus uh, tells them that this was going to be his last supper, and it was so in three ways. Number one, it was the last time that Jesus would eat with his disciples. Number two, it was the last time he would eat in his pre-glorified body. And number three, and most importantly, it was the final Passover of the Old Covenant. It had come to an end. Jesus looked forward to to this meal because he knew uh, that his death uh, as the real Passover lamb was going to be the fulfillment of long decades of Passover celebrations that pointed forward to his coming when the real sacrificial lamb would once for all die for the sins of all people. So from uh, the uh, deliverance of, Egypt, of Israel from Egypt in the Exodus, uh, which was foreshadowing or pointing toward Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus tells them, uh, despite their ability to understand what's coming next, that he will not partake of this meal again until he does so in the kingdom with all of God's children experiencing resurrected eternal life in the newness of the creation God makes. Jesus himself explains the significance of the bread and the wine. The broken bread represents his body, which was about to be broken by blows and scourging and crucifixion. The wine represents his blood, which is about to be poured out in order to uh, inaugurate a new covenant and to provide for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Jesus says, take, eat. 
This is my body, which is broken for you. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you, for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take bread. As they conclude their time in the upper room, uh, it's somewhere uh, around midnight just before or just after. And Scripture says, when they had sung a hymn together, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They were headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was Friday. We press into the cross of Jesus Christ, not because uh, it's uh, easy to look at uh, the greatest suffering any person has ever endured, but because we want to know Jesus. We want to love to give him the worship that he deserves, and we want to appropriate in our lives uh, everything uh, that he's provided so richly in the salvation that he has purchased for us. In the final hours of Jesus' earthly life, we find he and the disciples uh, going to the garden where Jesus will agonize in prayer to the Father. By the third hour, at 9 o'clock a.m., Jesus' crucifixion will begin. In the time that lapses between those two scenes, uh, Jesus doesn't have a moment to rest. From the time uh, Judas uh, with a crowd of armed people and the religious leaders show up in the garden and Jesus is arrested and the disciples flee, uh, Jesus will spend all night going back and forth through the town of Jerusalem to appear before different authorities. He begins with the former high priest. It's an informal trial, uh, just a, a kind of an inquisition uh, by an ass who is the father-in-law of the reigning uh, high priest. Uh, he doesn't really get anywhere, so he quickly sends Jesus onto Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas is the high priest at the time, and he's not making any progress in questioning Jesus, so he confronts him directly and asks this question, are you Christ, the son of the living God? If Jesus answers yes, then he will have given Caiaphas uh, the legitimate basis that he needs to appeal uh, to Pontius Pilate for the execution of Jesus based upon insurrection and treason. This is the only question that matters, and Jesus' answer does not disappoint. He responds, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father and coming on the clouds in heaven. At this, Caiaphas, the high priest, tears his robes and he renders uh, the accusation of blasphemy, which for the Jews is punishable by a death. And so they're agreed that Jesus should be put to death. The beginnings, the beatings begin here. This is followed by a trial at sunrise, uh, a, a full official gathering of the ruling Sanhedrin. Uh, in which they all come to agreement uh, that they should petition Rome, they should petition Pontius Pilate for the execution of Jesus. The trials in front of the Roman Empire take place in three phases. In phase one of the Roman trial, Jesus appears before Pontius Pilate, who finds no reason in him that he should be executed. But discovering that he is from Galilee, he decides to send him uh, to see Herod Antipas. 
Herod Antipas is normally in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, he oversees the area of Galilee, but he's in, uh, as any holy day would require, he's in Jerusalem in case there's an uprising, there's enough Romans to put it down. Now, in the phase two of the Roman trial, Herod is anxious to see Jesus because he's heard of him and he hopes that Jesus will perform some kind of a miracle. He questions Jesus, but Jesus remains silent. There's only one person in Jerusalem who can order the execution of Jesus. It's Pontius Pilate. There is nothing to be gained by Jesus interacting with Herod Antipas. So Herod mocks him, dressing him in royal attire, and he sends him back to Pilate. This leads to the third and final phase of the Roman trial, a series of back and forth conversations between Jesus uh, and Pilate and Pilate and the religious leaders. And Pilate is reluctant to, to render a guilty verdict. He orders that Jesus be flogged and then just be released. But the reigning uh, religious leaders, uh, they manipulate Pilate by accusing him of, of going against Caesar, that if he was to release Jesus or if he, didn't, uh, if he didn't execute Jesus, then it would be an offense to Caesar. So falling back on custom, G, uh, Pilate says, I will offer to you the release of someone who's in prison. I can give you Barabbas or I can give you Jesus. The people who've now been worked up into a foment over Jesus uh, asked for Barabbas to be released. Pilate, symbolically washing his hands of Jesus, orders that he be scourged and crucified. It's a brief summary. I, I think that there are two ways uh, that we can uh, look at uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ at, at his last sufferings. Uh, one is, is very similar to where the disciples happened to be at this point. Uh, they were they had tunnel vision. They were so focused on Jesus being the Messiah, and they were so confident about what was going to happen in this week while they were there that they just couldn't see it coming. They're disillusioned. They're disoriented. They can scarcely believe that Jesus winds up on a cross and dead. It's very similar, I think, to the person who's considering Christ and the truth claims of Christianity that it's very hard to take into account that something so critical could happen to someone so innocent. More than that, that someone, you're telling me that someone had to go through that for me? And there's this great temptation to just want to turn away from the cross. That's a very uh, earthly perspective. That, that's the first way to look at it. But the second is what happens after the disciples uh, see Jesus resurrected from the tomb. Suddenly their hearts and minds are flooded with scripture uh, that talked about what Jesus was going to do, what was going to happen to him, and what was going to happen after. And suddenly their hearts are flooded with faith. When any of us in this room came to the place in life where we were convicted of our sin and we gave our life to Jesus Christ, suddenly faith helped us to see there's another way to look at the story. There's a human perspective and there's a heavenly perspective. On a human plane, from an earthly perspective, the passion of Christ is no doubt the worst case scenario. I mean, just think of it for a moment, that the creator of all things would clothe himself with flesh and come to the creation that he made and that his creatures, his image bearers, would crucify him. Like, what kind of welcome for our creator is that? And then when you study what happened to Jesus, the entire process uh, was a sham. The, Jesus' trials were illegal. They, they've, they invalidated law about how these things should happen. They used false witnesses. The truth is the verdict was fixed long before they ever even arrested Jesus. But the real cruelty and injustice is in what Jesus had to endure physically. It began in the garden. 
When Jesus goes to the garden, the disciples can hardly keep themselves awake as Jesus is under such anguish, crying out to God, praying. Scripture says that he was so stressed and physically under duress that the sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Here Jesus is likely experiencing a medical condition called hematidrosis. I think I pronounced that right. It's a condition where the blood vessels and and the capillaries will actually rupture under the skin because you're under so much extreme anguish or physical stress. And then, with the arrest and his hands tied, where he's defenseless, he begins to be paraded around. And anybody who wanted could take a whack at him. And then he's ordered by Pilate to be flogged, thinking he's going to be released, or at least that's what they said. And then once he's condemned... He faces Roman scourging. Roman scourging was so brutal and violent that prisoners would occasionally die before they ever were actually crucified. During the the scourging, uh, uh, the victim, Jesus, is tied to a post and beaten with an interwoven whip of bone and metal until the skin and tissues are absolutely shredded. This physical condition of Jesus is so deteriorated that on the way to Golgotha, they have to recruit Simon the Cyrene to carry his cross. And then there's the crucifixion. Roman crucifixion was designed and perfected to be as gruesome and humiliating a death as possible. And it was put on public display specifically for the purpose of striking fear in the masses. The condemned uh, to die were often stripped naked or at least close to naked, and this was in order to take away from them any dignity while they were dying. Iron spikes or nails were used to drive uh, the victim's hands. Uh, The nail was driven through the wrist, crushing the carpals. This created incredible pain in terms of uh, not only bone damage and muscle, but, but also nerves. And then another nail would be driven through through both feet with the knees slightly bent. This was in order uh, that the the condemned could actually lift themselves up just enough to get a breath of air. When they wearied out, when when they tired out and could no longer do that, they usually died by asphyxiation. Eventually, a last measure would be to break the criminal's knees, the person crucified, so that they could no longer push themselves up against the rugged cross. This would hasten death. Uh, This happened to the two thieves that hung on either side of Jesus, but as a fulfillment of prophecy, which there are many throughout Jesus' final week and his crucifixion, Jesus is spared having his legs broken. Scripture actually said uh, not a bone of his would be broken. When the Roman centurions come to him, they find that Jesus already appears to be dead. And again, in fulfillment of prophecy, uh, they plunge a spear into his side and blood and water flow, signifying that his lungs were probably filling up. Isaiah writes prophetically of Jesus' physical suffering. He says his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Such physical suffering is horrific, but it is only part of the story of the worst case scenario. Jesus also endured great and inexplicable spiritual suffering. It started in the garden. Mark records uh, that Jesus tells his closest three disciples, Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. The weight of what Jesus was beginning to experience, even in the garden as he's praying, was crushing the life out of him. Do you remember what Jesus prayed? He prayed, my father, if it is possible, let the cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Returning a second time, he prayed, my father, if, it, if, uh, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. 
Jesus knows that he is about to bear God's judgment uh, for sin as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the world. This cup, it is the cup of God's wrath. It is God's wrath stored up against every person's sin who has ever lived on planet earth. It's it's his wrath against every act of evil, uh, every act of hatred. It's the brokenness that we have done to this world. All of that stored up into a cup, and Jesus is about to drink that cup on behalf of others. His spiritual suffering started in the garden. It ended at the cross. As horrific as Jesus' physical suffering was, and the Romans knew how to make someone suffer, It pales in comparison to what he endured when he became the epitome, the embodiment of sin and evil. Again, Isaiah writes of this, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Among the seven words that Jesus utters from the cross, the fourth, which comes just prior uh, to his death in the ninth hour at 3 p.m., is Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In some mysterious way beyond our human understanding, Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, is cut off and separated from the Father. He's never experienced this before. I'm not just talking about in his earthly life. Going back to eternity past, he's never been cut off from the Father. Perfect fellowship between them, but because he is bearing the sin of humanity and enduring enduring God's wrath as a substitute for And in place of sinful humans, the Father must turn away. There's one way to see the crucifixion from uh, an earthly perspective. And when we look at that that way, it's clearly the worst case scenario. And and the temptation for the person who sits here, uh, who has never really looked longingly at the cross, who's never really come to the place of recognizing their desperate need for what God done, they just can't get quite over the idea that he had to go through that for me. But as soon as the disciples' eyes were opened, as soon as we come to faith, we have God's perspective. And on a heavenly plane, God's perspective shows us that the passion of Christ was not only the best case scenario for us, but it is also the only way. Think of it, that a perfect and holy God who loves his creation so much that he'd be willing to die for them, to make a way for them to be forgiven, to make a way for them uh, to overcome sin, to redeem them, and uh, to commit to making all things new. The disciples couldn't see it, and and we couldn't have foreseen it either. But the truth is, uh, our condemned already hopelessness in sin makes this the greatest, best news the world has ever been given, that God loves us so much that He would come to rescue us. And it was on purpose. It wasn't an accident. This didn't befall Jesus. Romans 5 tells us that God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus says in the buildup to his crucifixion, he's, do you not think that I could ask my father and he would give 12 legions of angels to come to my defense? He tells Pilate at a point, you have no authority over me than that which is given to you. As Jesus hangs on the cross, no sooner has he uttered the horrific words of abandonment than he says, it is finished. The redemptive work that he came to earth is fully accomplished. There is no longer a price to pay for sin to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who come to the cross and find in Jesus a Savior. 
And then the final word, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. One author writes that here Jesus demonstrates that even in his dying moment, he is still in control. He still has the power to will his soul to the Father. Another writer observes uh, that the cry, immediately after the cry of utter abandonment, we see Jesus turn to a trust-filled bedtime prayer of a child. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And this is why we run to the cross. And this is why we call it Good Friday. And this is why we implore people to turn to God by grace through faith in the person and completed work of Jesus Christ because there is no other way. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That means he was mocking the shame because he knew what the goal was. He knew what the prize was. He was after you and he was after me. And because of this, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Apostle Paul, again, writing in Colossians chapter 1, writes these words, beginning in verse 19. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things on earth and in heaven, making peace by his blood on the cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. As you came in uh, this evening, uh, there was a song playing, you might have noticed. And I think it's a perfect summary, an old hymn of the story of what God has done as He's lavished His love upon us, the story of, of what happened when 2 Corinthians 5.21, when He, that is God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast Beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. 
until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Sing this with me. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Father God, we are so grateful for your incomparable love. It's not hard for us to hear the words of John and see him looking skyward to say, what kind of love is this? that we should become the children of God. And that is what we are. And it is a debt that we could never repay. It is an eternal debt that we owe to the blessed Son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that for us this has become a Good Friday, that we no longer see the crucifixion merely from an earthly plane that we don't feel compelled to turn away as though we do not need that sacrifice. We are grateful for your grace that you have provided for our forgiveness. I pray tonight, Father, for the one who looks at the cross inclined to turn away. I pray for the one who thinks they need it least. And I pray for the one who knows they need it most. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the vindication of the Messiah, which comes three days later. We love you, Lord, and we're grateful for your goodness toward us. We pray all of this in Christ's name, by whom we have access. Amen. It's Friday. Jesus is dead. His body is laying in a tomb, and it's sealed with a stone. It's Friday. The enemy of God rejoices as though he has accomplished a great victory. The religious leaders are confident that they have eradicated their problem. The capital city is quiet as Passover begins, but there is a palpable shock in the air. It's Friday. Mary is traumatized. She sees something no mother should see. The disciples are scattered without a shepherd. It's Friday, but Sunday.